What are these false claims of widespread election fraud doing to our country right now? They appear to be motivated in part because uh, the president doesn't like to lose and uh, never admits loss. Um, I'm more troubled by the fact that other Republican officials who clearly know better are going along with this, are humoring him in this fashion. Um, it is one more step in delegitimizing not just the incoming Biden administration, but democracy generally. And that's a dangerous path. That was former President Barack Obama telling Scott Pelley of 60 Minutes this week about how Donald Trump's continued refusal to accept the results of this year's election poses a threat to the legitimacy of American democracy itself. Even as foreign leaders from Britain's Boris Johnson and Germany's Angela Merkel to Saudi Arabia's King Salman congratulate Joe Biden on his victory, the president's lawyers continue to pursue legal challenges to the vote count in courtrooms around the country. We'll discuss the state of those legal challenges and the president's virtually non-existent chances of success with Yahoo News reporters John Ward and Andrew Romano. And we'll talk to author Chris Whipple, who has written acclaimed books about presidential chiefs of staff and more recently about CIA directors, about what to expect from Biden's pick of Ron Klain to run his White House and the impact Trump's bizarre behavior is having on national security on this episode of Skullduggery. because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I don't think I fully appreciated just how weird the moment is right now until I saw this story on Friday in the Washington Post Metro section about Virginia Republican congressional candidates who got trounced in the election, who are refusing to accept that they actually lost. And a couple of examples here. Why do people think I have to concede? I will not concede, all caps, wrote Manga Anatmula, a Virginia Republican who lost to Congressman Gerald Colony last week by 43 points and nearly 170,000 votes. And then we've got another one, Leon Benjamin, who lost to Congressman Donald McCatchin by more than 22 points and 89,000 votes, who uh, apparently wrote a fundraising email, please donate what you can to help me in my battle against potential fraud. So all of them taking uh, their cues from President Trump, uh, sticking their heads in the sand and, uh, you know, pretending that the results of the election just didn't count. Yeah. And, you know, this president has helped um, his followers create this kind of alternative reality where candidates simply don't accept the obvious, you know, which is that they've lost. Now, it is possible that these uh, candidates, the ones that you refer to, I don't know anything about these cases, but it occurs to me that it's possible that they, they see an opportunity to drag this out, you know, some like false effort to you know fight a battle over fraud. But really what they're doing is raising money to pay off their campaign debts. But they're playing with fire because what they're doing, you know, as President Obama uh, said in that in that clip that we just uh, listened to, is they are really undermining, you know, our democracy. And so the question is, you know, if this keeps on happening and voters out there believe these candidates, you know, the day, the day will come at some point where, you know, they don't just express their feelings on Twitter, but they come out with their pitchforks, you know, and they're in the streets. Well, you know, we are violence. having, as we discussed the other day, uh, as I speak, uh, the Million MAGA March 
on Washington on Saturday. Uh, we'll see how many people show up, but uh, clearly these are uh, sort of uh, angry voters uh, determined to uh, you know, push the president's case. And um, all I can think of is how many of them are going to be wearing masks? Uh, how many of them, uh, you know, what, what's the magnitude of a super spreader event when you have, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, we'll see how many show up in Washington congregating people who don't believe in masks, don't believe in taking any steps to uh, deal with the reality of COVID. Remember when uh, Trump said uh, after the election, uh, you won't hear any more about COVID, it'll just go away because COVID was only being promoted by uh, the Democrats and the media as a way to take him down with these uh, Unbelievable numbers we're seeing now. 163 cases. Yeah, record numbers, worst ever. And uh, COVID does not seem to have gone away at all. Well, I got to say, it it will be interesting to see how many people show up at this million MAGA march on Saturday because it occurs to me that if if uh, if it ends up being a dud, you might have Trump coming into office, lying about the size of his crowds and leaving office, <laughs> lying, <laughs> lying about, about the size, the of, size his of his crowds. Crowd. But I, yeah. I, I, I will say that late on Friday, he came out into the Rose Garden to give a update on Operation Warp Speed. There was some, I think, expectation or at least hope uh, from reporters that he would address the election and questions about whether he would concede or whether he would cooperate during the transition with President-elect Biden. He didn't do that. He made some reference to uh, whoever I forget what the exact language is. I think you have it's it what, what he said was, whatever happens in the future, who knows which administration it will be? I guess yeah. time will tell. And yeah. then he went on to say, but I can tell you this administration will not go to a lockdown. Yeah. So that may be the closest we get to a uh, concession. At, at least he's yeah. At least he's allowing for the possibility that he that he lost. <laughs> that which he, he may not really be in done, office uh, right. before. So, you know, as I said, I think on the last show, this is kind of a national therapy uh, session for this president. He, he he hasn't spoken in about a week, so he is processing the, his his electoral loss, and we'll see uh, if in the coming days, you know, he gets to the point where he uh, either concedes or or just simply starts, you know, the, the the transition process. Right, right. Well, we've got our own therapy session for uh, skullduggery listeners on the pod. Uh, we've got uh, well, Warden Romano to take us uh, through those uh, legal challenges and how they're almost certainly going to, you know, end up as complete duds. And then Chris Whipple, who has you know, written these great books about presidential chiefs of staff. That was The Gatekeepers. And he's got the new one uh, about CIA directors. So uh, let's get to it. And now to uh, walk us through the legal challenges that the Trump campaign is bringing to the election, we've got Andrew Romano and John Ward, our Yahoo News colleagues. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Hey. Thanks for having us. So the president is still insisting that there's a widespread fraud and he actually won the election. There are all these lawsuits out there. Just are any of them, <laughs> is there any merit to any of them? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that. Like, for example, I think yesterday uh, we had a ruling in Pennsylvania that said the secretary of state there exceeded her authority by extending the deadline for voters who had voted by mail to come in and cure problems with their ballot. She did this because some of the mail was delayed and she wanted to give voters six days to do that. I think the state, the court there ruled that she didn't have the authority to extend that deadline. And so some of those ballots, which had been segregated, might be thrown out. But just to put that in perspective, that might be the only legal win that the Trump campaign has had in dozens of cases, and it will affect a minuscule number of ballots, nowhere near the 54,000 that Trump would need to catch up to Biden in that state. So even when they do have some merit, which they very rarely do, they're inconsequential. 
So, I mean, we have a, a pretty elaborate set of safeguards when we do these elections, whether it's outside observers or all of the things that these individual secretary of states do to guard against uh, cheating and, and fraud. And my sense is that there's been a lot of effort over the last, you know, since the election to go back and check to see whether there's actually been any instances of, of fraud, right? I mean, I think the New York Times checked in with like 49 states and every single one of them said that there was no significant fraud of any sort that would change any outcomes? Beyond that, if I could just break in here for a moment, the Homeland Security Department's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released this statement on Thursday saying that the election was, quote, the most secure in American history and that there is no evidence of any voting systems that were compromised. This is the Trump administration itself, the relevant federal agency that looks at the security of elections and concluding that basically there's nothing to these challenges. You know, there's something interesting there that I haven't written about. I've just sort of observed this, heard this as as I've looked into some of these issues. But so I'm not an expert on this issue, but I do know that after 2016, our voting and election systems were deemed critical infrastructure. And that allowed the federal government to put more resources and attention on the issue of making sure they were secure. And that's that's the folks that put out that statement. And it was mostly, that statement was mostly having to do with attempts to penetrate and hack the election systems, whoever points there, that they might be vulnerable, whether it's voting machines or, you know, uh, the way that states are communicating the results to each within the state from the county to the state, et cetera. So yeah, I think that's been a big focus for the federal government. And I think that's what that statement was about. I've written all year about, you know, fraud, whether it's election fraud or voter fraud, those are two different things. And and we I think we've gone over that on the podcast here. But I, I thought that that was a pretty significant statement that they came out with yesterday. Yeah. And as as you said, the the New York Times contacted they tried to contact all 50 top election officials in every state. They got through to 49. I think Texas was the one that didn't get back to them. But Republicans and Democrats, this is not a partisan thing. All of the top election officials in, in pretty much every state said that there was no fraud or other irregularities that played a role in the outcome of the presidential race. You know, what really strikes me about at least some of the legal challenges they're bringing, a lot of them seem to revolve around the idea that Republican poll watchers were blocked from being able to observe the counting of the votes or weren't close enough to counting of the votes. And, you know, that may be have been the case in some instances, but I'm at a loss to see what the conceivable judicial remedy for that would be. I mean, no judge, no court is going to throw out and disenfranchise a huge group of voters based on, you know, the, the fact that there were some numbers of poll watchers who couldn't watch those votes being counted. That would literally disenfranchise yeah. people who went to the polls to vote and have their vote taken away. I mean, I, I can't imagine any judge doing that. Yeah, but I mean, I think we talked about this last week as well. The observers thing has also been pretty much a huge lie as well. I mean, there might be anecdotal one-offs. I mean, I, I've heard of one, I've heard of one incident in Philadelphia where somebody was blocked from being a poll watcher in Philadelphia, and that was a misunderstanding as far as on the ground reporting came back and that was corrected. And as far as you know, but you had didn't we talk about this, Ted Cruz saying that in Philadelphia at the convention center, they were not allowing people to watch. That's just yeah. straight and up I, false. And I think you, and I think in your story debunking all of these claims by the Trump campaign, you note that in their own pleadings, right. uh, lawyers have acknowledged that there were Republican observers right. at all times. Now, I think there's some question about how close they were allowed to be. But let me ask you about another set of allegations, which I think, John, uh, you wrote about this past week, which, you know, is one that perennially comes up in elections and and stories about 
you know, election chicanery, uh, particularly uh, in in Chicago, which is dead people voting. And I think the Trump people were going to be brandishing obituaries of people who had died but had managed to vote in this election. So what's that all about? Well, some part of it, uh, probably a good portion of it is people who cast a ballot and then die. You know, they cast a ballot either by mail or they cast it in early voting in person. And then they pass away before the actual election. So you're saying they're actually alive when they vote. Their corpse has living breath in it. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, there's different laws in different states over whether that vote counts. There's, I think, 13 or 17 that allow that vote to count. There's another 17 that don't. And there's some number of states that don't have clear rules on it. I think there's probably undoubted, you know, again, there is fraud every election. It's usually quite local or isolated. And so I have not spent a ton of time, quite frankly, looking into whether there was a person here or there who took a ballot that was sent to a a deceased relative or spouse or something and voted it. I'm sure that happens. But when you're talking about margins and, and quite frankly, like that kind of stuff, if it's caught, should be prosecuted and penalized. And I think, you know, there's efforts to do that. But, I, you know, the argument that something like that could add up to anything statistically significant is is not a serious argument. Yeah, I mean, I just want to sort of step in to give some perspective here that, that the Trump campaign has been uh, talking darkly about, insinuating darkly about hordes of, of dead people voting, uh, essentially accusing Democrats of uh, impersonating taking the identities of, of dead people and using them to cast additional ballots for, for Biden. But they've only, as far as I've seen, they've only been able to point to two examples of this potentially happening. One was in Pennsylvania, where there was a woman who died on October 22nd, which was a day before election officials received her application for a mail-in ballot. So that, that application was sent in before she died. And then the county received and recorded her vote 11 days later. So somehow she voted after she died. The Philadelphia Inquirer actually tracked down the daughter who said that she helped her mom fill out this ballot and that she couldn't recall exactly how the mom had voted, quote unquote, after she passed away. But she also said that her mom was planning to vote for Trump. So the dead are not partisan, you know, the the dead dead people do not prefer Biden over Trump necessarily. And the numbers we're talking about here are tiny. That that was literally that and one example in Nevada is that are the only two examples that the Trump campaign has pointed to. People have done studies of this. They went through a billion votes cast in all levels of elections between 2000 and 2014, and were only able to find 31 examples, credible examples of voter impersonation. So it's just it's a tiny, tiny number of incidents that we're talking about here. There, I want to, Mike. One, one, one quick thing on this. There are, there are um, different levels of accuracy, state by state, in terms of how how accurate each state's voter rolls are, and that is an issue that deserves plenty of attention. Some states do a really good job of keeping their voter rolls accurate and up to date. Like when somebody dies, that gets corrected. Other states are not. I think it's totally a worthwhile project to go through all 50 states and look at, you know, what are the rankings for how accurate their voter rolls are. That's something that should be focused on more. But, you know, another thing we should be doing is, I think probably is automatic voter registration so that people, when they, when they renew their driver's license or interact with the state in other ways, you know, if they're not registered, they're automatically registered unless they opt out. That's one way to, re- but that's something that increases voter participation, which Republicans for the last 20 years have resisted doing. I actually think they shouldn't because this last election, as that interview with David Shore, he made this very point. Increased levels of participation don't have a partisan advantage to either side. One fascinating statistic in the story you guys did that cuts against the idea that there was some master campaign of fraud to um, take the election away from Trump and give it to Biden in the city of Detroit, where Biden, you know, pulled out his lead. Trump actually got significantly more votes this time around in 2020 than he did in 2016. 12,654 votes in Detroit this uh, this election compared to only 4,972 four years ago. So if 
the idea was to um, use these Democratic-run cities to uh, shift the election. You know, the numbers don't seem to hold that up. And Biden got a thousand votes less, I think, than Hillary Clinton did four years ago. Yeah, it's um, well, of course, in it's, Detroit. Yeah, I mean, it is also the Detroit. case that it, yeah. it is only in those states where they lost that they're claiming any, any kind of voter fraud. And of course, in those states that they, you know, this was the intellectual inconsistency of their argument before they were saying, you know, in Arizona, where the, the votes were coming in, the margins were narrowing in favor of Trump for a while. They were saying, keep voting keep, or keep counting. Or, uh, you know, and in Pennsylvania, where because of mail-in ballots, he was ahead with the uh, the in-person vote, they were saying, stop counting. So totally. Um, it's all you know, it's all part of the elaborate yeah. Democratic scheme to to but, <laughs> but, cover their tracks. But I want to ask <laughs> you, I, I want to ask you guys a question about about the use of the courts here, because. The mantra that you keep hearing from uh, Republicans in Congress, including Mitch McConnell and others in the leadership, is President Trump has the right to take these disputes to the court and and seek remedy if remedy is 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 warranted. But you know, every every judge in the country, I think, has the authority to sanction litigants if they are bringing frivolous lawsuits because using the courts in that way first of all it's it's you know it's a waste of time it's a waste of money and in this particular case it undermines faith and confidence in you know the most important of our democratic institutions and so i just you know i wonder frankly i wonder whether the trump campaign ought not be sanctioned for bringing these kinds of 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 lawsuits i, I don't want you guys to have to express your opinion here I'm just asking the question, but what I worry about is that this that they establish a precedent, and going forward, election results are just challenged like this as just a part a part of the process. And I yeah. think that is. I think that would that would be really unfortunate. And in fact, we're already seeing a degree of that in down ballot races in states like California and elsewhere, where. You know, Republicans have lost by 40 percentage points. They're saying that the election was stolen and they're going to challenge it in court. You know, they're taking the lead from the Trump campaign. And the fact is, we have a process for tabulating votes and certifying elections in, in, in the United States. There's nothing different this time other than the fact that the message from the top is that you can't trust anything that's happening in elections if it doesn't go your way. And that that is that is a dangerous path to go down. On the certification issue, it's like... In a week or so, the states have to start certifying, correct? And what happens when we get to that point? Can I just say on the last point, and then I'll get to the certification, I have a question in, you know, right now with Senator Josh Hawley's office, because I asked all 53 or so senators, however many Republican senators there are right now, I asked them all, you know, about this continued attempt by the president to overturn the election. And Holly's staff pointed me to his tweet where he says that when all lawful votes have been counted, recounts finished, and allegations of fraud addressed, we will know who the winner is. I wrote back that his standard for an election is over when all allegations of fraud have been addressed. Wouldn't that mean you could prolong the result as long as somebody somewhere was making allegations? So I think they're going to have to, well, they're not going to have to. I think it would behoove them to correct those statements, because if they don't correct them, like, that's the standard going forward. Like, yeah, well, good, are- good, good luck with that. Anyway, on the uh, on the question of certifications, because I think that's going to become Georgia's a week from today. Michigan and Pennsylvania are are a week from Monday. And I was, you know, texting with one Republican who said he thinks that's when Republicans will start breaking with Trump. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Hey, um, Andrew, uh, we can't let you go without addressing the elephant in the room, and that is the polling in the 2020 election. You were our go-to guy for polling. I think on the last um, show we did before the election, uh, you gave us the results of the uh, Yahoo News YouGov poll, which showed uh, Biden winning nationally by 10 points. 
He obviously didn't get there. I think it's, what, three points now. Um, what went wrong with not just our poll, but all most of the polls uh, that were done throughout the election? Yeah, if you talk to the real polling geeks, they'll say, well, you know, <laughs> the, there was an error, but it wasn't that large and blah, blah, blah. I don't think it was pretty people, large. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think normal people look at it that way. They see the Yahoo News poll saying 10 percentage points and the average of national polls saying eight percentage points. And they see Biden winning by three or four, you know, maybe five when all is said and done. And they say that's a big miss. They look at the swing states, states where it was showing you know, like Wisconsin, where it was showing Biden with an eight-point lead. Uh, Washington Post had him up 12. Yeah, I mean, I, I, do, agree, I do agree with the geeks yeah. that you shouldn't just cherry-pick individual polls. But if you look at the averages, it's stark. There, there was a big miss with Wisconsin, Biden up by eight. Michigan, you know, up by eight. Tied in Texas, tied in, you know, even a point or two ahead in Florida, tied in Iowa. And you saw across all of these close, these hard-fought states, the key swing states, that there was like a six, five, six, seven, even eight percentage point error in Biden's direction. That is, Trump beat his polls by those those margins. That's stark. I think that's stark. And I think it undermines trust in polling. What happened? People are still sorting it out. One of the most persuasive theories that I've heard has to do with uh, not in response or non-response bias to polls. That is, not that Trump voters are lying to pollsters, because researchers have shown that that doesn't really happen but they're not picking up the phone. They're not responding to the online survey. And part of the reason that, that um, some people think that is, is because there is a, a loss of trust in institutions, in the media, in polling itself. It's all fake news, so we're not gonna participate in it. Conversely, some people have said that, that liberals were so excited about this election and stuck at home during COVID that they, they were eager to pick up the phone and answer the pollsters. And it just created a skewed sample where you weren't getting a lot of these low trust Trump voters on the line to talk about their opinions. And it created a, a polling that that showed Biden ahead by more than he actually was. Yeah, I don't know if this maybe this relates to that theory. But one thing I kept wondering, as someone who doesn't really know that much about polling, but when we were seeing these polls before the election was, but wait a second, do we really understand the electorate? And do these polls capture turnout? You know, how does a poll capture turnout? Because, you know, Biden underperformed somewhat with, say, you know, Hispanic voters in certain places, Florida, Rio Grande Valley, African-Americans in, in a couple of places, but not enough, I don't think, to explain that the size of the miss. But Trump overperformed in a lot of ways in terms of really juicing turnout and in terms of finding more rural voters and white voters who are part of his natural base that didn't vote before. So is that a flaw in polling, the inability to capture turnout? Well, it's hard, right? I mean, this is part of this idea of likely voter screens. It's that after Labor Day, pollsters start to tend to apply their, make some assumptions about who they think likely voters are. Um, and I think they, you know, they realize there was going to be enthusiasm on both sides. But again, when you don't have especially those low trust, white working class Trump voters answering the phone and participating in your survey, it's hard to count them uh, as likely voters and kind of weight them properly. But it's not just them. I mean, yeah. I'm unpollable because, you know, we get flooded with robocalls and I don't answer the phone. And if oh, I course. pick up and if I pick up the phone, either on my cell or landline and it's a robocall, I hang up immediately. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, on top of that, you know, the phenomenon of the Trump voter who doesn't trust institutions and doesn't want to share uh, his or her views, you, uh, you know, you have a major, you know, systemic issue with polling uh, as a result of, you know, the robocall phenomenon that right. I think, you know, skews everything. You know, what the problem is that, you know, as reporters, as journalists, we love numbers. We love to have numbers to back up what we say. And that's what sustained the polling industry. But I think after two elections in a row, two presidential elections in a row where the pollsters got it this wrong, it's got to raise a big question. Mark yeah, I'm really interested to time. see if it's sort of. What happens when Trump's no longer on the ballot and how much of this was a Trump factor versus a, the times that we're living in? Um, it's going to be really interesting to see, but there's no doubt going forward, 
that journalists like us are, you know, I mean, I, in everything I wrote, I tried to put the polls in perspective. I said in every article that Trump may not lose by 10 percentage points, but if there is a polling, <laughs> if there's a polling error the size yeah. of the one in 2016, Biden would still win. And that's exactly what ended up happening. But, you know, people see headlines with a 10 percentage points and they think Biden can run away with it. And, and I'm intrigued by some of these proposals that people are floating about ways to either combine polling with other ways of measuring public opinion. Some people are talking about social media ways of monitoring and quantifying what's happening on social media to get closer to the way that the public is, is feeling. And I think there's going to be kind of a, a reckoning um, and some reforms in the polling industry and, in, and among journalists who, who use polling as part of their toolkit. I mean, I think a big a big piece of it is is about expectations. I mean, if people if people if consumers of polls and of news go in, you know, can can sort of retrain their minds to have lower expectations and just use polling as a guide, a measure. But as Mike said, we have become addicted to polls. God forbid we might have to go back to writing about policy and well, issues. Look, I mean, we, you, Dan, you're the editor of Yahoo News. <laughs> or interviewing I, actual I, voters, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. But look, you're the editor of Yahoo News, and I... I Wait, would, is this going to be a throw Dan under the bus episode? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. no but, but look, people love the poll stories. They click on them. You know, it's it's we are driven clickbait. by what people are interested in. clickbait. <laughs> That's I mean, what you've been doing, Romano. Clickbait. Uh, yeah. I don't want to dismiss it as clickbait. By Dan's order. But it is... Well. It's Part of it. Yeah. Can I say one thing on this? Just yeah, I think yeah. I think one potential thing pollsters could do to try to redeem themselves is just I think introduce a lot more transparency because to your point, Mike, it's so hard to get in touch with people. I've been wondering this for years. Who are they talking to? So like I think you know transparency about who are they actually? I, I don't know how you would do this because it's like such a lengthy and like, uh, you know, labor intensive process, but some, some measure of transparency to say, like, this is how we're contacting people. This is how many people we tried to contact and, and couldn't. I, I just don't, I don't, I don't quite understand quite under, quite honestly, like what they're doing, like how they're doing what they're doing. And I think right. that's- Well, I, I think it's time to dismantle the political no polling, polling industrial <laughs> complex. That's what uh, is I think we all just got to get out into the real America and talk <laughs> yeah. to real Americans. Okay. Uh, which means enough time with you guys. Um, <laughs> so, hey, let, thanks a lot. Keep track of those lawsuits and uh, we'll be back to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Chris Whipple, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you. Congrats on the new book, The Spy Masters, How CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. It's a great read. But I want to start out by sort of playing off your last book, The Gatekeepers, about presidential chiefs of staff, because President-elect Biden has selected, not to anybody's surprise, Ron Klain as his chief of staff, longtime Democratic operative, longtime aide to Biden, and... Uh, course, worked in the Obama White House. What should we make of the Klain selection? And, you know, what kind of chief of staff do you think he's going to be? So actually put me down as somebody who was slightly surprised by really? Klain's pick, only because no VP chief of staff has ever been promoted to White House chief of staff. And also, he'd had a falling out with Biden back in 2016 when he uh, did his flirtation with Hillary Clinton's campaign before Biden had decided what he was doing. Clearly, they got past that. So while I don't think he was the sure choice, he's a really good one. On paper, he's great. He knows Capitol Hill. He knows the White House. He has a grown-up relationship with Biden. Good friends, but not so close that he can't tell Biden what he doesn't want to hear. All of that is great. But I think that he's headed into the teeth of the biggest challenge that any White House chief of staff has had in modern history. And all you have to do is, is count them. I mean, you've got a lethal pandemic, an economic crisis, global warming, racial unrest, and a progressive wing of the Democratic Party that's not necessarily going to just happily go along with whatever they have planned. So I, I, I just think it's Jim Baker and Leon Panetta had a walk in the woods 
compared to run, walk in the park. (laughs) So Chris, and we want to get into all of those challenges that are facing Klain, but just for the benefit of our audience, just tell them a little bit about what the job really entails. I think Jim Baker called it the second most powerful position in, in Washington, but what does a modern chief of staff do? How important are they in terms of running the government? So Baker is right. Cheney was also right when Dick Cheney, who was Gerald Ford's uh, 35-year-old White House chief of staff, was right when he said that the chief of staff has more power than the vice president. That was true, except when Cheney was vice president, of course. But the fact is that every president discovers sometimes the hard way that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief of staff to be first among equals in the White House to execute your agenda, and most importantly, to tell you what you don't want to hear. It's impossible to overstate the importance of the position. And all you have to do is look at the Trump White House, where there has been no empowered chief of staff since, with the possible exception of John Kelly, briefly, to prove the point. You have to have somebody who can execute your agenda and Just to go on, I mean, the chief of staff is in charge not only of being the honest broker of information that gets to the president, but also he's the famously the javelin catcher in Jack Watson's phrase. You take all the flack, all the incoming from uh, critics and allies alike, and you have to, as I say, at the end of the day, the most important thing is being able to walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. That'll be a whole new thing. We haven't seen that in four years. I should point out that uh, Ron Klain has been a guest on Skullduggery, and uh, that makes the point that uh, appearing on this podcast is often a stepping stone to um, power and influence. So, uh, well, right. th- there actually is another, I think, relevant point here, uh, not to flatter ourselves, but Ron Klain, oh, uh, having <laughs> having uh, worked in you know, really all three branches of government uh, over the last three or four decades, he is also very familiar with the fourth estate which I think is important in that yes. job. He knows just about right. every political reporter in Washington. I assume right. that the outpouring of support from him on Twitter <laughs> from reporters was kind of startling to me. Yeah, we should uh, join that slavish uh, sucking up that, that to is, Ron Klain. Uh, that's a big deal. Being able to deal with the, uh, with the press is part of the job description. And John Sununu sort of regretted, not sort of, he, he really regretted not having built a few more bridges when he got into trouble. And uh, until recently, I would have said Sununu was a contender for worst White House chief in modern history, but he's been left in the dust by Trump's White House chiefs. (laughs) But uh, back to Klain. So look, he's been around for a long time. He's generally viewed as a centrist in the Democratic Party. But as you point out, you've got the progressives on the left and who are going to be pushing Biden in one direction. And at the same time, you have a party that suffered some really unexpected losses, especially in the House. And it would look what's starting to look like a almost civil war among Democrats in the House over the direction the party should go. How do you see Klain navigating that tension And given that he is, you know, an establishment guy, is that going to cause problems, particularly that progressives on the left? The early indications are are pretty good. Elizabeth Warren was among those who came out and praised him as a choice. He could easily wind up, you remember that that Rahm Emanuel was, was looked at skeptically by a lot of the Obama faithful when he came in as White House chief, he was, he was regarded as a dreaded Clintonista and, and centrist and a guy who was past his time. I think Emmanuel overcame that. But the real models here are, are Jim Baker under Reagan and Leon Panetta with Clinton. Baker was, of course, hated by the people on the right in the Reagan era who kept saying that their their mantra was let Reagan be Reagan. And 
Jim Baker was their enemy number one because he was considered, he was the hated pragmatist, the guy who wanted to get stuff done and compromise in order to do that. Well, at the end of the day, it turned out that Reagan was very much a pragmatist too. But the joke in those days, and I think it was Reagan's joke when one day he said, you know, it's too bad that the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing. Uh, here. <laughs> I think that Ron Klain's going to have that kind of challenge. He's, he's going to have to figure out not only how to deal with the progressive wing, but I think his larger challenge is going to be governing in the most polarized era since the Civil War. And if, again, as I say, if you look back at the Jim Baker era or even Leon Panetta's years in office, it looks like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood compared to what Ron Klain is walking into. Let me just pick up on that very quickly. Most polarized era since the Civil War. That's, that's pretty um, stunning. It is. I mean, I, you, you could make a case for 1968 as being right up there, but... I don't think, I think in 1968, there was such a thing as a moderate Republican who wasn't, uh, wasn't a prisoner of a cult of personality. When Nixon went down, it was still possible to send a delegation of senior statesmen like Barry Goldwater into the Oval Office to tell him, you know what, your time is up. That wouldn't work today. Who, who would the Barry Goldwater be today to lead that delegation? There isn't one. And even if you could figure out who he was. It would be Mitt Romney, but he'd be leading an army of like one or two. Yeah. Right? And even if you could assemble such an army, Trump wouldn't listen to them. So it, we're in a very different place. And I, and I think what, what it will mean going fast forward beyond January 20 for Klain is that if I were he, I would be spending a lot of time with John Podesta and Dennis McDonough picking their brains about how to govern by executive order, because that's mostly what he's going to be doing. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. And I will say, by the way, it seems like Ron Klain is getting a bit of a honeymoon. We have a story that went up on the site last night, our White House reporter, Hunter Walker talked to uh, Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, and asked about Klain. She is, of course, the most progressive face in some ways, prominent face of the Democratic Party. She said it was a profoundly unifying pick and that it was encouraging for liberals and that Ron Klain is a listener. So we'll see if he... Oh, um, good. That's, that's all good. That's all. It's a good place. It's a good place to start. You know, you know what's striking about that? I just want to say is because I remember talking to Klain right after Ocasio-Cortez won that primary and he told me about how close he was to Crowley, the Democratic incumbent AOC beat. So yeah. it's kind of interesting that somebody who had that tight relationship with the guy she beat, she would be saying nice things about him. One of the things about Klain is that, you know, yes, he is an establishment Democrat. I guess you could call him a centrist. But one of his mentors in politics, I think really the first member of Congress that he, that he worked for, although I think he may have had some internships before that, was Ed Markey. And Ed Markey remains one of the most liberal uh, members of, of Congress. So I think Ron's politics, I think he is a pragmatist, and I think he is going to try to get stuff done, which is what the job of chief of staff is. But I, my guess is he can probably talk to progressives in a way that will comfort them, at least in the short term. But I wanted to ask Chris, I agree with you that assuming the Democrats don't win those runoffs in Georgia, which they likely won't, then Biden is going to have to govern in large part by executive order. But I wonder if there are any things that, you know, if you were the chief of staff or if you were advising Ron Klain, you, know, you are going to have to try to work with Congress. Are there things just coming out of the gate that you would advise as the chief of staff Biden to do legislation where you might be able to get some consensus to try to get a little bit of traction to try to show some good faith? Or is that just a fool's errand? Well, one of the things I would tell Biden is make absolutely sure that you empower claim to be first among equals in the White House. One of the one of the sort of this is going to sound funny the whole idea of Biden making a rookie mistake. But one of his rookie mistakes, in my view, was when he said during the campaign, 
that Kamala Harris would be the last person in the room when he was making big decisions. Now, <clears throat> I know why he said it, and we all love Kamala Harris, and we want her to be happy, but, speaking for, for the Democrats now, but at the end of the day, at the end of every day, it really should be the chief of staff and not the vice president who is in the room when he makes those decisions. And the reason for that is that the chief of staff has no agenda whatsoever other than the president's. And that's why you saw Barack Obama and Dennis McDonough take the walk, as they called it, at the end of every day around the South Lawn with the binder sticking out of, you know, Dennis's uh, pants. You know, they go around and they talk about the next day's agenda, and it was McDonough's job, just as it was Leon Panetta's and Jim Baker's, to say, you know what, Kamala's right about this, but you really ought to talk to uh, Rom about this, uh, that. Well, well, and that is especially true in this incoming administration with Kamala Harris, because she walks into the White House, into her office, as, you know, I think the putative frontrunner for not the 2028 presidential campaign, but 2024, because I think the, you know, most people don't think that Biden is going to run again. He'll be 82 years old. Yeah. So that's something that, that you would think Biden would know instinctively. But here's a little bit of armchair psychoanalysis that I'm a little reluctant to do, but go for it. Let's try it. Biden probably was not crazy about for eight years. He was probably not thrilled about the fact that it was Rahm Emanuel or Dennis McDonough in the room with Barack Obama when the big decisions were made at the end of the day. And so there could even be a kind of, he could have some resistance to that idea of empowering a chief. You know, if James A. Baker III was regarded by some people as a co-president and George H.W. Bush chafed at that, and when George H.W. Bush became president, he, he really sort of rejected the, the powerful Jim Baker model of chief of staff. Uh, he went with John Sununu, the rest is history. So it's a real mistake if Biden doesn't really empower Klain to get the job done. So you've written this book about CIA directors, and of course, there's a lot of... Um, Give the name, Issachar. Yes, I, I think I already did. The Spy Masters, How CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. Just a fascinating read, going back to the earliest days of the CIA uh, and directors from your first chapter there uh, is about uh, Richard Helms, who, of course, was CIA director under LBJ and just taking it forward. But you write a lot about Gina Haspel, and there's been a lot of speculation about Haspel. And first of all, whether she's going to survive to the end of Trump's term. And I was really struck in your portrait of her because you basically presented her as just doing Trump's bidding at every turn and even, you know, even to the point of showing up at the State of the Union address and applauding. I think you called um, her a cheerleader. Vig vigorously, uh, which is not something CIA directors traditionally do. Yeah. So first of all, what's your insight into why Trump would be down on her at the moment? Is he going to fire her? And uh, thirdly, um, either way, we can assume that uh, Biden will be naming a new CIA director. So who's it going to be? So first of all, as you know, I was lucky with the cast of characters that I got to work with in the Spy Masters because, you know, John Le Carre couldn't have dreamt up a more colorful uh, rogues gallery from Dick Helms, dry martini in one hand and cigarette in the other. Uh, <laughs> right to Gina Haspel, who's this, uh, you know, mystery woman and covert operative. So I was lucky with that. As far as Haspel goes, I think it's that's simplistic to say, I, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that she's been doing Trump's bidding at every turn. I think it's been mixed. And to, just for openers, I think she is the, the most fascinating, least understood person in Washington this mystery woman who flies under the radar. She's given no interviews. She's given two boilerplate speeches uh, since she became CIA director. She cut her teeth as a covert operative in Africa. 
worked her way up. And and one of the one of my favorite stories about her is how she latched on to the most unlikely mentor, feminist mentor imaginable, by the name of Jose Rodriguez. <laughs> Yeah. A guy yeah. we well remember yeah. as the implementer of uh, the uh, CIA uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. The architect of the enhanced yeah. interrogation program and creator of the black sites and all the rest. So Jose, you know, Rodriguez, the baddest dude at the CIA, you would think, is suddenly giving her career advice. And, and when Gina Haspel wanted, confided in Rodriguez and told her, well, I think I want to go maybe I can be station chief in Geneva. Rodriguez goes, girl, are you kidding me? That's not good enough for you. You gotta get London, go, you know? And the rest is history. She, she went to London, she had two stints there, then became CIA director. So back to the relationship with Trump. I think early on she learned from a master, Mike Pompeo, how to become the Trump whisperer, how to some extent to tell Trump only what he wanted to hear. Pompeo was good at that. And, you know, there was no falsehood. Mike Pompeo wouldn't repeat in public for Trump. He was a total sycophant. Um, As we just saw this week with his comment about uh, the second Trump term. Right. I think that Gina has been much more her own woman. And I think it's been mixed. On the one hand, I was told by a very high-ranking White House official that one thing Trump appreciated about China is that she loves to kill terrorists and she's really good at it. Now, that came in in her favor with Trump when al-Baghdadi was uh, cornered and killed, and especially in January when uh, the lethal drone strike was authorized on uh, General Soleimani famously. And that whole story is is one that with our news cycles just blew by. But there's a really, I think, important debate that still needs to happen about when we assassinate, quote unquote, foreign leaders. So she got credit for that. The reason she's in hot water with Trump now is because she is one of the few people standing between Trump and this ludicrous campaign of his to declassify all this Russian intel to pursue his fairy tale that the Russians were not involved in the 2016 election. She's one of the few people who is saying, well, not so fast, not, you know, not such a great idea. She's been resisting that. And whereas John Ratcliffe, speaking of sycophants, the current DNI, would have delivered this on a platter to Donald Trump. So she's in trouble because of that. But on the other hand, as I say, I think that I think there's some things about her that Trump admires, including the fact that she was involved in torture. Trump loves torture. <laughs> so there you are. Yeah. And is the underlying reason that she has resisted declassifying this information because in doing so, the CIA would be uh, disclosing sources and methods? The simple answer to that question would be she's doing her job. Right. You know, she's doing her duty. Trump proved early on the day after he fired James Comey and met with uh, the Russians, Lavrov and Kislyak in the Oval Office and slapped them on the back like fraternity pals and invited Pravda in to record it. You may remember that he gave away code word intelligence of an Israeli operation in the Middle East to the Russians. H.R. McMaster came out afterwards and tried to pretend it hadn't happened. That's the way he is. Now, there, there is, a Chris, a, a, you know, a bit more nuanced view of this than you just outlined it. We had a guy you write about quite a bit in the book, John Brennan, on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And uh, we asked him about the um, questioning he got from John Durham, who, of course, is the U.S. attorney who William Barr has assigned to investigate the Russia investigation. And Brennan acknowledged this in the book, and he talked about it a bit on the podcast, that there was not unanimity within the CIA about whether Putin had ordered the Russian attack 
on the 2016 election. And in fact, there were a couple of high-ranking operatives from the Russia division who argued that the intelligence was not as strong as the final intelligence assessment finally concluded. As you know, there's never unanimity. There's never unanimity, but also... Everybody, basically, the NSA had moderate confidence. Everybody else had high confidence. Right. And these two guys guys were saying, well, are, are you sure about it? Brennan, as I recall, um, his explanation was, I wasn't going to overrule our analysts based on based on two people who said, "Are you sure?" You know. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. No. No. But but I just I just want to just close the loop on that. Look, there's no question that the Russians were behind and and did the attack on the 2016 election. It was unprecedented. It was grievous. Uh, it really caused a great disruption. Yeah. But as you and I also both know from the CIA's track record over the years, it does get things wrong at times. Oh, and yeah. It does oh, yeah. overstate and misstate the intelligence. And just the reporter in me, you know, I fully understand the need to protect sensitive sources, but the reporter on me always wants to know more about just what the basis for that intelligence assessment was and, you know, as as complete a picture as we can get. And so I'm not instinctively against some declassification yeah, of nor, this nor stuff. Yeah. yeah. Chris, let me, let me just follow up on, I guess, the third part of Isakoff's uh, last question. So Gina Haspel... We don't know what's going to happen to her over the next couple of months. Maybe she'll she'll survive in the Trump administration. But I think we we can be pretty confident that she's not going to be held over uh, by Joe Biden, who's going to want his own CIA director. So who do you think that could be? And what kind of a CIA director do you think Joe Biden uh, would be looking for? Well, I think there are a lot of candidates. And I, I'm a little hesitant to handicap, uh, you know, to, to act as personnel director here. But um I think that Gina is probably, Gina Haspel is gone one way or the other, as you say. I think that um, if Trump were to somehow, you know, in some inexplicable way, have a second term, as Mike Pompeo has promised, that um, he'd probably replace her with another sycophant like Radcliffe, based on his current unhappiness with her. For, as for Biden, the much more likely scenario, I think you know, a lot of names have been bandied around. There's, there's uh, Michael Morrell uh, is on everybody's short list. Uh, Adam Schiff's been mentioned. Uh, Avril Haines, longtime deputy uh, at the CIA. Jeremy Bash is a brilliant guy, you, you know, would be really capable, I think. He was, Pan- he was Panetta's chief of staff and a CIA person himself, right? No, he wasn't yeah. actually... Um, that- <laughs> It's one of the few, it's one, you know how you guys well know that when you write a book, there's always something. There's always something. <laughs> right? And maybe that's where, how you got the idea. That is how, yeah. I, that is. I, I, so, I was like, I didn't, I didn't realize that. They referred to him as an intelligence officer and no, he, he's, he's not. not. So yeah, he was a lawyer. I remember oh, meeting him in the book. <laughs> during the Florida <laughs> recount. He was one of the lawyers yeah, for yeah, uh, Al yeah. Gore. Um, yeah. but, so anyway, uh, we're going to correct that in the paperback. Yeah. Uh, but um, so Bash, no, Bash is sort of more in the Panetta mold. Panetta is a perfect example of an outsider who came in and was arguably one of the best CIA directors in, in modern history. And partly because he had that ability to speak truth to power. That's right. Right? Yeah. So here's a spoiler alert. Some of the, some of the attributes that make great White House chiefs of staff that I described in the gatekeepers also applies, it turns out, to CIA directors. And foremost among them is that ability to tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. And, and Panetta was a guy like Jim Baker, who was grounded, he was comfortable in his own skin, he'd been around the block. He was 70 years old when he became CIA director. And he said, Chris, you know, if anybody gave me any shit, I was going to go back. Carmel is not such a bad place to go back to. Yeah. Back to his walnut farm. Can you just indulge us for a minute here and tell that wonderful story about his clash with Denny Blair, the DNI? Yeah. Because I think it's it's really uh, instructive about what a 
wily and effective operator Panetta was. It's a great story because in 2005, of course, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was created. And in the beginning, it was just a, it was broken. It muddled lines of authority. Nobody could really figure out what the DNI was supposed to do. Denny Blair made the mistake of thinking that he really was Leon Panetta's superior, which of course he was on paper, but not in reality. And he should, never should have picked a fight with Leon, but he did. And it was over the issue of appointing station chiefs around the world for the CIA. Denny Blair decided after a few conversations that, that he was going with, with Panetta and others, that he, Blair, as DNI, was going to appoint the station chiefs sent out a message, worldwide message to that effect to all the stations. Well, Panetta saw this, had not signed off on this, knew that this was CIA prerogative and jealously guarded turf. And he waited about 20 minutes or so and sent out his own message to all the CIA stations saying, disregard the previous message. Which was sent by his superior. Yes. Well, <laughs> within, so within a few days, they were hauled into the White House. And guess who was the referee of this dispute? It was none other than Joe Biden, the vice president. Yeah, Leon walks in with Denny Blair and says, oh, hey, Joe, do we still have our tea time tomorrow at 8? And the <laughs> vice president goes, yeah, that's right, Leon. And Denny Blair knew at that moment he was dead. He was a dead man walking. <laughs> He'd lost. Anyway, right, uh, right. he became, as one very high-ranking CIA uh, official told me, after he sent out that message countermanding Denny Blair's order, Leon Panetta was a god at CIA. He had their backs, and they loved it. Yeah. I've often uh, sent out emails uh, telling uh, reporters to disregard Clydman's previous uh, emails. Uh, but and, and by the way, speaking of corrections, I do want to correct myself from a moment ago. The dispute within the CIA was not whether Putin had ordered the Russian attack, but whether he had done so for the primary purpose of electing Donald Trump, yeah, right. as opposed to just sowing discord within right. the American body politic. <laughs> right. um, just moving forward to where we are today, here we are uh, a week after the election has been called, and uh, Joe Biden has not been given classified intelligence briefings, uh, which normally uh, president-elects do. What do you make of that, and how disruptive and you know potentially damaging Damaging, will that failure be? Well, it would be almost comic if it weren't uh, so dangerous, really. I think on a, on a number of levels, it's first of all, totally unprecedented. I'm supposed to go on C CBC tomorrow and explain this to the Canadians. I don't know how to begin to do that because it's, it's, a, it's a political farce you couldn't sell to Hollywood. You couldn't have sold, you know, uh, three or four years ago. But here we are with a president pursuing this uh, laughable legal challenge to an election that wasn't close. But the problem here is, I mean, I think that Biden and, and Ron Klain are very smart to just play this very calmly. They're trying to project an era of just quiet competence and not set themselves on fire. But I, it's which I think is smart, but it's much more serious than they let on, and especially in the national security realm, because um, I remember, and I'm sure you guys remember, on January 20, 2009, the outgoing chief of staff, Josh Bolton, was with the incoming chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, in the Situation Room the entire morning of January 20th, diffusing a terrorist threat that was thought to be imminent. It didn't come to pass, but that was an example of a functioning transition, a national security transition. The PDB is something that the president's daily brief, the president-elect not only should have had the day after the election, but the tra tradition going all the way back to Jimmy Carter was that the major party nominee would start intelligence briefings before the election. I mean, Gerald, Gerald Ford sent George H.W. Bush to Plains, Georgia, 
in July of 1976, and Bush personally briefed Carter. They had, I, think, I believe it was three, three separate sessions. One of the stories I tell in the book is how um, Bush lobbied to stay on a CIA director. And can you imagine if Jimmy Carter had said yes? It would have completely changed history. Anyway, to give you an example of how telling and how consequential the access to the PDB can be and acting on it or not, in January of 2020, the PDB was full of warnings of a lethal coronavirus that was headed our way. We are suffering right now the catastrophic consequences of a president who ignored those warnings in his PDB in January of 2020. This stuff is important. Yeah, you, you actually started to answer the last question I wanted to ask. I mean, you know, Biden's argument, one of his arguments to the American people was a return to normalcy, and I guess a return to norms. And the CIA and the intelligence community relies on a certain set of norms. One of those is these briefings of the president, which Trump kind of rejected, right? Yeah, by the way, not only is Biden not being briefed, as he should have been briefed for a long time now, but Trump isn't being briefed. Right. The president, the current president of the United States has blown off his briefings. The entire right. process is broken down. Yeah. And I guess my last question here is, would you expect that with a President Biden and the team that he puts together, the national security team, the CIA director, whoever he picks as DNI, that we're just going to go back to where we were pre-Trump and reestablish all of those norms that we had come to yeah, uh, I think rely on. Right. I think that's right. I think we will. I mean, I think that um, Biden uh, spent eight years in an administration that valued process to a fairly well, you know, maybe even went overboard. And um, I remember in, in the book, I think I quote somebody saying that when, uh, while they were waiting around for Barack Obama to show up in the situation room, this was a holdover from the Bush regime, he said, well, at least in our day, the fake meetings started on time. There were meetings and meetings and meetings in the Barack, in the Obama administration, uh, but they took process seriously. They had a pandemic plan that the Trump administration threw into the dumpster. Planning is important. Yeah. Process is destiny, as an old editor of yeah. Isikoff's and mine used to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, well, Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, Spy Masters is a great read uh, for anybody interested in the intelligence community and the CIA. So congrats on that. And, um, and what's, what's the next book? It's a pleasure. It's really great to be with you guys. Um, and I am at work on another book. I'll tell you about it soon. You know the old saying in the community, okay. I could tell you, but... It's classified. Okay. All right. You'd well, when it's us. done, we'll have you uh, we'll have you back on Skullduggery and maybe even before. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, guys.